What is the one place that you've never been that you would love to go to? Wow. Somebody's excited and ready to be here. I have an Australia. Can I see your Australia and perhaps raise you a trip to Europe? Because uh, the trip to Europe is, uh, if Sarah and I had to pick, we all have these places, right? But if we had to pick one place that we've never been to that we'd love to go to, it would be Europe. And there's a few reasons that we would like to go to Europe. First of all, uh, my family on my dad's side comes from Naples, uh, Italy, or Napoli, if you're from the old country. You can see how beautiful it would be to spend some time in Naples and so many of the other cities there in Ireland, in, uh, in Italy. We'd also like to go to Ireland. Speaking of Ireland, you can see the sweeping countryside there. I hear uh, just driving down the road in Ireland is a sight to behold. All the historic castles and the the rustic cuisine. You can't forget about the food. We often plan our trips around food, so we'd have to hit Ireland if we went to Europe. We'd also of course, if it was just Sarah and I especially, we'd have to go to Paris because the romance and the cobblestone streets and the small cafes, there's just there's something about the ambiance of, uh, of Paris that's intriguing for us. So we'd want to spend some time in Paris. Um, and I'm sure all of you uh, have that place. Who was it that said Australia? Somebody yelled, yeah, absolutely. So, okay, here's, here's a question. You all have that place in your mind. How would you feel if I told you that no matter how badly you wanted to go to Australia or some all-inclusive sandals, uh, wherever that would be where there's sunshine and beaches, no matter how many pennies you pinch, no matter how much you tapped into your 401k, that you could never ever get to that place. I know, what a jerk, right? I mean, that's not very nice of me at all. I mean, that would just totally burst your bubble. I want us to think for a minute about a different destination. Let's call, it, let's call it the ultimate destination. Even better than Australia, believe it or not. Better than Paris or Naples, better than Ireland. It's a place where there's not an ounce of stress or strain, not an ounce. It's a place that doesn't even require you to go through TSA at the airport, believe it or not, it's that good. If you're brave enough to bring your children with you on this dream trip, this is a place that is guaranteed to produce happy children. They will never argue or fight as you're in the car traveling. No arguments. It's, it's that good. You're probably ready to go there. We're coming out of the winter doldrums here in Northeast Ohio. The destination, though, that I'm talking about is heaven. The ultimate destination, the place of God's realized and manifest presence. We're continuing this morning in our series in John's Gospel, and we come to a, a section of Scripture in John chapter 8 where Jesus makes an absolutely shocking statement about heaven. Listen to this, John 8, 21. He says, I'm going away, meaning I'm going back to heaven, back to where my Father is, and you cannot come. You cannot come. Isn't this Jesus? Yes, it is. And kind of in the same way that I burst your bubble a minute ago about not being able to get to that dream destination, Jesus here in John 8, 21 makes a heaven-shattering statement. And in making a big statement like that, he introduces a real problem, both for the, the people that he was talking to originally and for us. And that problem namely is, how in the world can we get to the place where God is in light of Jesus' statement? What does he mean? 
For the answer, I want you to meet me in your Bibles in John chapter 8. John chapter 8, we continue our series in John's gospel called Jesus the Great I Am. Come on, get your Bibles out. Flip to John 8. If you don't have a Bible, reach uh, and grab a pew Bible, and you can find it on page number. Does anybody have that page number for the pew Bible? Oh, it's on the screen. You guys are all really good. Page 8, page 894 in the pew Bibles. Please follow along. Interact with the text as we study it together. John chapter 8, verses 21 to 30. Let me read it for you in its entirety. So he, Jesus, said to them again, I'm going away, and you will seek me. You will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you, much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I've heard from him. They did not understand that he'd been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. And as He was saying these things, many believed in Him. So, Here we have Jesus continuing along the dialogue that we know he started last week. Uh, He continued to talk with a group of Jews. We know that at least among that larger group, there was a group of Pharisees. So this would have been the group of uh, religious and self-righteous leaders of the day. And after testifying to the fact that he was the light of the world, if you remember Pastor Nick's message from last week, Jesus drops this bomb on them in verse 21. I'm going away and you will seek me but where I'm going, you cannot come. What does he mean? Well, he means, and what we need to hear this morning is that without Jesus, we will never get to the place where God is. It is utterly impossible to get to heaven, into the presence of the Father, without Jesus. And this phrase, if we can camp on it for a couple of minutes, you will seek me, but you cannot come, is, is really fascinating. Think about it. We read in other places in the Bible, seek me and what? You will find me, right? But here Jesus actually goes in the opposite direction. You will seek me and you cannot come. You will not find me. So what's he after here? What's his play I think he's after a couple of things. First of all, what Jesus is doing here is issuing a solemn warning to this group of Jews. He's basically saying that a time is going to come, namely at death, when the opportunity to follow him would pass. It would be over. In other words, there are not an infinite number of opportunities to choose to follow Jesus. Jonathan Edwards was arguably the greatest theologian in American history. He emphasized this point in a famous sermon that he once preached from Deuteronomy 32:35. The text, chilling in nature, says, Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot 
shall slip. Edwards went on in his sermon to say, it is said that when due time comes, their foot shall slide. Then they shall be left to fall as they are inclined by their own weight. God will not hold them up in these slippery places any longer, but will let them go. And then at that very instant, they shall fall into destruction. Listen, there are some cultural portraits out there of Jesus that paint him in such a way that he is loving, but he's not Lord. That he's sympathetic, but not sovereign. Friends, in this one verse, in John 8, 21, it absolutely exposes all of those knockoff portraits as phony. If this initial verse from John 8 should tell us anything, it's that Jesus is not somebody that we can just play loose and fast with. He's not some genie that lives in a bottle that exists uh, for our beck and call. We just, when we need something, we rub the lamp and he pops out and he gives us what we want and then he goes back in the lamp and we, we comfortably just kind of keep him at arm's length back on the shelf. This is not who Jesus really is. He is not afraid to say the hard things to us. He is the sovereign Lord of all and we do not get unlimited chances to bow our knee to him and to his lordship. Now what about those of us that would say, I identify myself as a follower of Jesus. I am a follower of Jesus. I tell you, one of the massive implications of a verse like this, one of the massive implications of a statement like that we heard from Jonathan Edwards is that it should cause us to well up with real concern for those who aren't following Jesus. Does your heart really well up with compassion that leads to action as you think about perhaps that person in your family or a friend who is at this very moment, dancing on the slippery places. These types of statements from Jesus ought to shake us out of the comfort of our pews to get serious about gospel work, to get serious about evangelism. You will seek me, but you cannot come. Not only is this a a solemn warning, it's also a serious indictment on those Jews who would continue seeking after the Messiah, other Messiahs after Jesus' death. You could see the problem, of course, because they would search, but their search would be in vain. Why? Because the one true Messiah, namely Jesus, would have already come and gone. I think this is why Jesus actually says, you will seek after me, or you will search for me. But of course, unfortunately, we see, based on their response in verse 22, that they totally look past this warning, and they they put the question back on Jesus. Look at that question with me, verse 22. The Jews said, Will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. This question just drips with indifference and ignorance. The reason is because that in Jewish culture, suicide was a particularly grievous sin. In their minds, the darkest, coldest corner of hell was reserved for the person who committed suicide. So you can make the connection. Basically what they're saying to Jesus is, listen, if he says where he's going, we cannot follow. That must mean he's going to hell. And we don't want to go there. We're not going to go there. And so in their indifference and ignorance, they would go on looking for other messiahs and miss the one true messiah that was standing right in front of them. Now it can be of course, easy for us to stand in judgment over a group of people like this. But the truth is that 
this applies as much to a first century Pharisee as it does to us today, doesn't it? Because all of us, in some way, are looking to someone or something to justify our existence here on the earth. We're looking for something to justify our life, whether it's fulfilling the American dream, you know, getting into this neighborhood or this school district, building a, a healthy retirement portfolio so we can retire comfortably, giving all that we have to that. And man, once we get there, once our net worth crosses that one line, then we're validated and justified. Or if we're religious like the Pharisees, what we're really after is a stellar religious scorecard. Church attendance, three out of four Sundays a month. I mean, that's really good. Reading our Bibles, not once or twice a week, but like four or five times a week. Check, got that one. I'm even gonna participate in Tithe Sunday. Whoa, this is serious. Friends, all good things, but none of which in themselves can justify us. Self-righteousness isn't going to do it. Without Jesus, heaven is an impossible destination. As we move through the passage, we not only see that heaven is impossible without Jesus, but knowing God is impossible without Jesus. Without him, we will never really know who God is. Because Jesus is, in fact, the perfect revelation of God. God himself, it only follows that apart from him, we can't know God. Check out verse 25. We see here a second question that comes from this group of Jews. They say to him, who are you? Jesus responds, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you, much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I've heard from him. Again, the question amounts to something like, just who do you think you are anyway? I mean, rolling up into the temple, issuing warnings. I mean, who do you think you are, Jesus? And of course, Jesus appeals to, rightly, appeals to the consistency of his testimony. And he tells them, I've got a lot that I could say to you. And yet, he who sent me is true. And, and I declare what I have heard from him He's the perfect revelation of who God is. You can't know God apart from Jesus. But verse 27, if you look at it, shows us that they were spiritually blind. They did not understand that he'd been speaking to them about the Father. We might say that they were spiritually incapacitated. When we say that a person is incapacitated, we usually mean that they don't possess the ability to perform a certain task and what we have here is a group of people who were spiritually incapacitated. They did not and could not know God because they did not know Jesus. What was the source of this incapacity to know God? What was the, what was the root of that? Jesus actually answers the question for us in verse 23. Look at it with me in your Bibles. What a statement he makes. He says, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Now, this is not like Jesus saying, I'm from Canfield, you're from Poland. This is not just a, a matter of a pure geography here. What Jesus is saying is that you, you don't know who God is because you are from the wrong spiritual universe. 
saying, I'm from above. I'm from the, the, the spiritual realm of God himself, but you're a part of a, a fallen, rebellious world system that doesn't know God, that doesn't submit to him as creator and king. And honestly, we're no different. I mean, you spend five minutes with a, with a toddler. I mean, even Carly, you're cute, babe, but you spend five minutes with a toddler and you will realize that we don't come out of the womb eager to worship Jesus and follow his commands. Now, we're, we're born into sin we're born into that nature, into a, a system that either shakes its fist at God or if you're a little more tolerant, maybe puts up with him, but certainly is not going to say, I'm going to follow him as Lord and Master. No, no, we would, we would much prefer to live life our own way, on our own terms. Now, for those of us, again, who are here and identify as Christians, you might say, Chris, I would never question the authority of Jesus like that. Yeah, I, would, I would never come against the Lord in that way. Maybe not overtly, but I wonder if we truly live in the consistency of setting our minds on the things that are above. If we have, in fact, been transferred out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus the Son, are we really regularly setting our minds on the things that are above? Or is it just a little bit easier to to hedge on the honesty of a particular conversation so that you can advance yourself in your job or advance yourself into a different social standing. Or to maybe harbor not a lot of anger, but just just enough against your spouse that one day is ultimately going to boil over rather than dealing with that conflict in a godly and in a healthy way. I'm sure you've heard of the phrase, worlds apart. Two things or two people being worlds apart. Usually refers to a, a gap that cannot be bridged, a large gap when two things are worlds apart. For example, we might say that some of the presidential candidates that are currently running in the race are worlds apart. We've, we've certainly seen evidence of that over the last few weeks. They, they're not going to come together. This is what Jesus is saying in this passage to his audience. He's saying we are worlds apart. We're from different spiritual galaxies. And of course, the problem lies with us, doesn't it? Jesus is from the right place and he's going to the right place. We are the ones born on the wrong side of the tracks. We are the ones, if we want to know God, that need to cross spiritual galaxies. And without Jesus, this is unthinkable. Believe it or not, the situation is actually worse than it seems. I realize this is heavy, but it doesn't get any lighter at this point. It's not just that we can't get to where God is or know who God is. It's that without Jesus, we're going to die in our sin. Death will come to all of us, but without Jesus, we'll die in our sin. What a chilling statement. And it's a statement that Jesus makes not once, not twice, but three times in this passage. The first is in verse 21, when he issues his warning about heaven. I'm going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Now, what is the the sin that Jesus is talking about here? I think the sin that he's referring to really is, is the essence of sin, the nature of sin, particularly the context helps us here, the sin of unbelief. This is the ultimate rejection of Jesus as God's Messiah, the ultimate rejection of him as the only one who can get us to the place where God is, and to get us into a relationship where we can properly know God and live in relationship with him. But Jesus says it 
two other times. Verse 24, he says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Here it's the plural form of the word. And all Jesus is showing us, all these little proclivities, uh, thoughts, deeds flowing from the sin of unbelief that we are, without him, destined to die in the ugliness of unbelief and all of the children of unbelief. What would you say is the worst way to die? I don't mean to be morbid, and I don't ask that question haphazardly, but what is the worst way to die? Listen, as a pastor, uh, I see the devastating and terrible effects of death all the time, and so do you. Right? We lose the ones that we love the most to terrible diseases like cancer or Alzheimer's disease, or we lose them tragically and unexpectedly. But I think what Jesus is saying in this passage is that the worst way to die is actually to die in our sin. Because if we die in our sin, then death takes more than just our bodies or our minds, right? It takes our soul. If we die in our sin or die in unbelief, we'll never get to the place of eternal rest. If we die in our sin, think about this, we have got to account on our own without an advocate for every misplaced thought last week. When I think about the week I had, that's terrifying to stand before a God who rightly demands righteousness if we want to access his presence for all of eternity, to to stand before him accounting for every misplaced thought, every omission of good. Now, think about what that means. Connect the dots back in relationship to all of these other horrible ways to die. Listen, I hate cancer. I hate it. I hate Alzheimer's disease. I hate that 15 months ago, my mom fell down a flight of stairs and hit her head and suffered a traumatic brain injury and died. I hate that. But do I hate sin even more? Do I really see death in sin as even worse than all of these terrible, awful diseases? And if this is true, if what Jesus is saying is true, then it really begs a huge question, doesn't it? Is there another way to die? And if so, how do we connect into that way? And there are really two parts to this answer that we see from the text. The first part is that if we want to avoid dying in our sin, then we have got to believe in who Jesus is, the person of Jesus, and we have to exercise a real living trust in him to avoid dying in the worst way possible. I want you to look back again in your Bibles at verse 24. This verse really serves as a hinge in the passage. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. In his grace, Jesus gives us the answer here, doesn't he? Believe. Put your faith in Jesus, which is actually the antithesis of dying in unbelief. 
Now, there are a couple aspects. It's one thing to say believe in Jesus, but there's a couple aspects of what that means that this text gives us that are really wonderful. The first comes in that little phrase, I am he. Unless you believe that I am he. It's pretty unique, and honestly, it's a little confusing. Think about it. If I were to to introduce myself to Bob, I would say, hi, Bob. I am Chris Strombetta. I am Sarah's husband. I am Emma's dad. I am the executive pastor at Old North Church, or whatever. We, we modify in some way. But that's not what Jesus does here. It's interesting. He just says, I am he. If you're reading the NIV this morning, uh, that version of the, the scriptures, that translation attempts to clarify by translating it, I am the one I claim to be. And that's certainly true. We do need to believe that Jesus is who he claims to be, but that's actually not present there in the original language. And so, the ambiguity of Jesus' statement is totally intentional. So what's he saying? I think Isaiah 43, 10 and 11 brings exceptional clarity. It says, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant, whom I've chosen, that you may know and believe that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, I'm that guy. Or, more appropriately, I'm that God. This is who I am. And he's also saying, I'm the only Savior we get this, this idea of Jesus being the sent one of God from verse 26. You might look at it. Jesus says, I've much to say, much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I've heard from him. Believing in the person of Jesus means believing that he is the sent one from God, the Messiah come to deliver God's people from the ultimate enemy, not the enemy of Rome but the enemy of death and sin, the ultimate enemy that we see from this passage, and only Jesus can save us from that enemy. But there's a second point of belief that this passage pushes us toward, not only believing in who Jesus is, but if we want to avoid death and our sin, we've also got to believe in what Jesus does. Trusting in the work of Christ, looking to the work of Christ is essential to escaping death in our sin. Look at verse 28 with me. Jesus says, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. Then you will know. Again, both an indictment on those who historically would look upon the death of Jesus almost in a judgmental sense that He really is who He said He was, and we've missed it. But also, to encourage us The exaltation of Jesus, the cross being what Don Carson, a New Testament professor, describes as the glorification and exaltation of Jesus, the event which establishes his claim, that claim, I am he, loudly and most forcefully. So often as we think about the cross, we think about the atonement, which is good, we think about Jesus' substitutionary death, which is good, but here... We see the cross as the greatest revelatory event in human history. The cross revealing who Jesus really is to the world, proving out his claims, substantiating his mission as the savior of the world. 
The cross reveals a couple other things. It also reveals Jesus' perfect union with God the Father. When you've lifted up the Son of Man, you'll know that I am He, but speak just as the Father taught me, and He who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone. So it reveals his union with the Father. It also reveals his perfect obedience to God, his perfect submission to his will. What a statement. He's not left me alone, verse 29, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. What a statement. I mean, who among us could stand up here on this platform and say, I always do the things that are pleasing to him? Not even close. But Jesus can make that statement, and Jesus does make that statement. This is something that scholars refer to as the active obedience of Jesus. The positive righteousness that he earns as a man, a righteousness, frankly, that we need if we are going to live in proper relationship with a holy and just God, if we really want to access his presence for all of eternity. We can't do that on our own. You can't stand on this platform and say, I always do what's pleasing. For me, some days it's rarely. But Jesus can. And faith in that work, trusting that he has sufficiently satisfied the wrath of God against sin, is the only way we can escape death in the worst way, death in our sin. I have to imagine that uh, all of us are familiar with Charles Dickens' novel, A Christmas Carol. Uh, if you've not read the novel, I'm sure you've seen one of the hundred movies that have been made about this, uh, this well-known novel, A Christmas Carol. And of course, you know the main character is Ebenezer Scrooge, a, a lonely miser who really just lives for himself and his own gains and ambition. But the turning point of the novel or the movie is when Ebenezer Scrooge comes face to face with his own gravestone. He approaches it slowly and he lifts his eyes to the gravestone and he sees the chilling inscription Ebenezer Scrooge and he makes the statement oh tell me that I might sponge away the writing on this stone friends in many ways John 8 21 to 30 brings all of us in this room face to face with our tombstone and the writing on the stone Apart from Jesus, he died in his sin. She died in her sin. Unless, unless we die another way. Look at the last verse of this passage with me, verse 30. It's some commentary from John the Evangelist. These are not Jesus' words. These are John's words now. Verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Friends, what John is showing us and what Jesus has been saying all along is that the remedy for dying in sin is dying in faith. The only solution for dying in sin is to die in faith, to die in faith of Jesus and who he is and what he was done and in dying in faith we live this is the gospel twist death will come to all of us but if we die in faith we actually live and of course the huge difference between us and Ebenezer Scrooge is that 
We cannot sponge away the writing on the gravestone. That is beyond our capacity. Remember, we are born into the wrong spiritual system apart from God. It's beyond our capacity to leap across spiritual galaxies, to sponge away the writing on the wall. He died in his sin. But it is not beyond the capacity of the one who dared to claim, I am he. It is not beyond the capacity of the one who was lifted up in perfect obedience and submission to God the Father. So what must we do? Look to the cross. Look to Jesus. Whether it's for the first time of placing a living faith in him or the millionth time. Friends, if you're here and you're a Christian, looking to the cross is not just for those who have never trusted in Christ. So whether it's for the first time or the millionth time, May we remember this morning the only remedy for dying in sin is dying in faith. And to die in faith is to live. So, the question remains, how will you die? Let me pray. Father, a heavy passage this morning Yet we are thankful uh, for the opportunity to interact with something, something of substance, something of eternal significance. We, we're too easily uh, distracted by temporal matters, Lord, things that, that really don't have an eternal significance. So we are thankful for the opportunity to come and to sit under your word where we can reflect. I pray for those of us who are in Christ that you would help us just to see the devastation of sin, to be pushed forward in gospel work, to speak the gospel prayerfully to those who don't know Jesus who are living as we once did on those slippery places. Help us to remember that if we have been transferred into the kingdom of the Son to set our minds then on the things that are above. And Lord, for anyone here who has not yet trusted Jesus, I pray that through the power of your spirit and word, you would help them to see their need for a Savior and that they would find that Savior in the Lord Jesus and in his work. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.